Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a Canon Press favorite from the 2017 Grace Agenda Conference, The Romance of Protestantism by Douglas Wilson. My topic is The Romance of Protestantism, which is an odd topic, and I hope to explain it as I go. Protestantism is thought by many to be a cold and austere thing, a tangle of negations, a deracinated approach to Christian faith, something that for two cents would slip into etiolated liberalism. Etiolated is a word that means it's what the grass looks like when it grows under the board. White, it's not the color grass ought to be. Protestantism is thought slanderously to be a cerebral affair with all the warmth of the blood drained out of it. And because enough time has gone by, centuries, we should not be surprised that even some of her sons have accepted this false account, failing to read their biographies and histories properly, and therefore assuming the role of being doctrinaire dullards. So I'd want to begin with words from my favorite papist, Chesterton, who said that a courageous man should be willing to attack any error, no matter how ancient. But, he went on to add, there are some errors that are old enough that they should never be patronized. In other words, you should oppose error, regardless of how old. But you should, some errors, uh, don't, don't patronize them. And may I suggest that Protestantism, having built a great civilization over the course of 500 years now, should be included in the number of things that ought not to be patronized, ought not to be patted on the head, ought not to be told, oh, someday you'll grow up. As we address this subject, we really need to avoid accusing Protestantism of opposite errors, such that if the accusation is heated in one direction, it creates the opportunity of accusing them of worsening in the other direction. In other words, some people accuse Protestants of having, quote, no sense of place, no real identity, no commitment to, quote, unquote, belonging. And then, if they do exhibit those traits, you can accuse them of being sectarian, bigoted, closed-minded, jingoistic, and so on. It works admirably in the other direction also. If you work on not being sectarian, they can always accuse you of being rootless, floating in midair, not knowing who your people are, etc. But I intend to speak uh, tonight as a partisan, not as a bigot. I'm a partisan, I'm a, um, I'm a Protestant to the back teeth, but that, that's not the same thing as bigotry. I love the Lord Jesus, and that, is, and that is the reason that I love Protestantism. I love the Lord Jesus, and that is why I love being Protestant. Now, this might strike some as being odd, and others, it might strike some others as being perverse. And so it is that I want to set before you, my desire to set before you, the romance of Protestantism. And I know that, as I said at the beginning, I, this is going to take some getting used to. Please bear with me. What do I mean by the romance of Protestantism? We have to begin by defining terms. I want to define romance, and I want to define Protestant. So let's begin with romance. C.S. Lewis once said this, a strict allegory is like a puzzle with a solution. A strict allegory is like a puzzle with a solution. A great romance is like a flower whose smell reminds you of something you can't quite place. A romance is something that's evocative. It reminds you of something you can't quite place. An allegory, a well-done well allegory, it's a puzzle and everything has its place, and if you figure it out, you figured it out. This would indicate, Lewis's comment would indicate that romance is a word that is cherry of strict definition, although Lewis can certainly point to examples. In multiple, place, in multiple places, for example, Lewis calls Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings a romance, and I think Lewis would, would call The Lord of the Rings the ultimate romance, the, uh, um, the 
top drawer romance. That's, that's what it is. We are, of course, not talking about gothic romances starring Lord Grey Eyes standing alone on the ancient bluffs as the sea breeze ruffles his hair. We don't care about his hair or the sea breeze or his gray eyes. And I want, I, this is just a side thing, not my main point, but in real life, gray eyes are very, very rare. Extremely rare. In fiction, they are commonplace. Gray eyes, gray eyes everywhere. But that, of course, is not my main point. So what was my main point? <laughs> so let's talk about real romance. Uh, 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 romance in the way that uh, uh, Treasure Island is a romance, or The Lord of the Rings is a romance. Following a sketch provided by the historical writer Deborah Alcock, I want to say that a romance consists of four elements. A romance consists of four elements, which are courage, high endurance, generosity, and warm affection. Courage, high endurance, generosity, and warm affection. We'll come back to this, but in the meantime, compare those elements, those four characteristics of a romance to Lewis's standing example of The Lord of the Rings. All four elements are there and in abundant measure. Is there courage in The Lord of the Rings? You know, it's laughable. Is there high endurance? You look at what Frodo does. Yeah, it's, of course. Uh, is there generosity, uh, Sam, Sam Wise? Yes, there is. Is there warm affection? So these, these four characteristics are preeminently characteristic of a story like that. Okay? So that's the kind of story I, I mean when I'm talking about a romance. So let's continue to define terms. Protestantism. As you all know, Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door at Wittenberg in 1517, 500 years ago this year. He was, issuing, he was issuing a challenge for debate to all comers, and as it happened, this challenge was a lonely spark in a room full of fumes. The radical nature of what he was doing had to do with the propositions that he wanted to debate, not the fact that he was nailing something to a church door. Uh, the church door was the bulletin board of the, of the era. That was a commonplace thing to do. You, you'd put all the notices on the church door. Um, that wasn't his radical move. The radical move were the, were the things that he wanted to debate. Don't think of what would happen if you nailed something to your church door. <laughs> Painful interview with the deacons. So Martin Luther, uh, when Martin Luther started out, he, he, wanted to, uh, he, he wanted to see many abuses in the church cleared up, but the, the central thing, the justification by faith alone, um, everything, everything hadn't come together yet. Uh, something was in the air, there was something that was moving, there, was, there were forces much larger than Luther involved in this. Um, someone once pointed out that the Reformation in Europe was like a a pot coming to a boil on the stove. And Luther was the first notable bubble that came, came to the surface, but the heat was under the entire pot. The, um, the, the forces that were at work were, um, were at work in England and in Germany and in Italy, as we just heard, um, and it was just a remarkable time. So Luther issued this challenge for debate to all comers, and as it happened, this was the spark in a room full of fumes. The Reformation came to be, and there were more than a few flash burns. So nobody was expecting this. Nobody was expecting the magnitude of it. Nobody was expecting how ready everybody was for it, but it, it blew. To use several of Aristotle's categories, which the reformers would not have minded using, the material cause of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone, justification by faith alone, and the formal cause of the Reformation was sola, sola scriptura, scripture as our only ultimate and infallible authority in spiritual matters. Sola scriptura is our own, means that scripture is our only ultimate and infallible authority in spiritual matters. And, and the way this works is 
Someone says, hey, um, we're justified by faith alone. And as, the, as certain bright individuals gathered right away, uh, this collides with the teaching office of the church. The church in her teaching office says something different. So as soon as you maintain something about sola fide, you, you run slam bang into the question of who, who determines these questions. You run into the question of authority. Who's in charge? Who says who? All right. So when, when we say as Protestants, and this is something that, that I think is important for us to get um, fixed in our minds, when we affirm the doctrine of sola scriptura, we are saying we are not saying that scripture is our only spiritual authority. We are saying that scripture is our only ultimate and infallible spiritual authority. We have spiritual authorities that are not the Bible. You have pastors, you have a board of elders. If you're children, you have your parents. There's, you know, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Um, so if you're supposed to obey your parents in the Lord, um, if wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as the Christ does to church, to the, uh, as the church does to Christ, if... Um, in Hebrews 13:7 and Hebrews 13:17, it says that the people of God in the congregation should um, identify their their leaders and mark the outcome of their way of life and and be obedient, and make their job easy for them. Clearly, you have spiritual authorities that are not the Bible. The pastor is not the Bible. Your parents are not the Bible. Your husband is not the Bible, and they're spiritual authorities. Yes, but they are not ultimate. There's a court of appeals beyond them. If they sin, which they do. Uh, there is a way to appeal beyond them. They're not, they're not ultimate, and they're not infallible. They can make mistakes, and they're not the final word. They can make mistakes, and they're not the final word. So church councils have true spiritual authority, but it's not a final authority. It's not an ultimate authority, and it's not an infallible authority. That's why the Westminster Confession says councils and synods can err and have erred. All right, so sola scriptura is that the Bible is the only ultimate and infallible authority, not the only authority. Oftentimes, our Roman Catholic friends will accuse us as Protestants of believing in solo scriptura. You know, just me and my Bible. I don't, I don't have to listen to anybody else. I can, I can just go and be, you know, the, a lone ranger kind of Christian. But that's not what we're affirming at all. So, after 1517... Everything started to boil, and just a few years after this, four years later, in 1521, Luther was condemned by the Edict of Worms. At the Diet of Worms, he was condemned at the Edict of Worms. And it's interesting, just as a side note, uh, about a century before, um, I mentioned the, the pot was boiling and there were, fr- there were reformers and proto-reformers and bubbles coming to the surface. About a century before, uh, John Huss uh, in Bohemia had been burned at the stake, um, and he was a, a clear forerunner of the Reformation. He was a rough contemporary of Wycliffe in England who was teaching many of the same things. There were a lot of these forces that were, uh, that were coming to a head. And it's, it's quite likely that John Huss saved Martin Luther's life, even though Huss died as a martyr and, um, and Luther lived a century later. And, and the way Huss saved Luther's life was this. Huss was promised, uh, Huss was condemned by the Council of Constance you remember that there were three popes contending for, um, uh, you know, I'm the true pope, no, I'm the true pope, no, I'm the true pope. Um, and the Council of Constance wanted to resolve that difficulty and other difficulties. And John, John Huss was promised a safe conduct to the Council of Constance uh, in order to g- give an account of himself there. And he went, he went to the Council of Constance under a safe conduct, under a safe conduct and was promptly arrested and the, the, he was double-crossed, arrested, we broke our word, ha-ha, you know, uh, nothing you can do about it now. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of back and forth. He was um, uh, not given really a fair trial at all. But near, near, near the end of Huss's life, he said uh, he was before the emperor. The emperor, Sigismund, was there. And... Uh, and in one of the exchanges, Huss was, uh, Huss was being asked if he would uh, recant. If all, all he had to do was disavow his errors and he'd be all right, and he, which he refused to do. And 
he said, in, and in one of the exchanges, he, he looked pointedly at the emperor, uh, Sigismund, and said, I, uh, I, I came here, by the way, under a safe conduct. You know, something, to, words to that effect. He brought up the safe conduct that had been uh, egregiously violated, and Sigismund blushed, just a, a very obvious uh, blush. He just reddened. And that saved, that exchange, Huss jabbing the emperor, uh, probably saved Luther's life. Because Luther came to the Diet of Worms, the emperor, Charles V, was there. The emperor was being pressured to double-cross Luther. Luther came on a safe conduct, just like Huss had come on a safe conduct. And Charles V, who was a, a devout Catholic, was being pressured to double-cross Luther and arrest him, and then we'll be done with this. And Charles V, to his great credit, said, I would not blush, as did Sigismund. I don't, I don't want to be in that position. So, but nevertheless, Luther was condemned by the uh, Edict of Worms. So this is in 1521, just a few years after the Wittenberg door uh, initiation of these things. Then just a few years after that, remember, I'm defining what Protestantism is. A few years after that, because the emperor, Charles V, needed the political support of the Lutheran princes in a political struggle he was having with the pope, right? There was religion and there was politics. Charles was a devout Catholic in doctrine, but he had a political problem with the pope, and he needed the partisan support of some of the Lutheran princes, so an edict of ambiguous toleration, sort of a mumble, that was hammered out at the Diet of Spire in 1526. So in 15, this, so that's just five years after Worms. So we'll just sort of look the other way uh, with regard to the Lutherans. A studied legal ambiguity like this was all the reformers needed, and the Lutheran churches grew like crazy. All right? So all we needed, when they were suppressing them, it was a real problem, and then when we backed off uh, just in a few years, the Lutheran churches um, were going nuts. That's 1526. Then, so three years after that, in 1529, there's the second, dire, the second diet of Spire, uh, in which the emperor was seeking to revoke the settlement of the first Diet of Spire, which would have had the effect of going back to the condemnation of worms. He wanted to get the lid, lid back on. So he wanted to get the lid back on to the Protestants. That was the job of the second Diet of Spire. So now two big things came out of this second Diet. Uh, the first one is they didn't go back to the Edict of Worms fully. They, they didn't go back to the condemnation. And the second thing that came out of the Diet of Spider, Spire is our name, Protestant. This is where we became Protestants. And I can tell you who the first Protestant was, and I'll tell you in uh, just a few moments. So it's easy for us to think that Protestants are defined by what they are against. We hear the word protest in Protestant, loud and clear. So if someone says, I'm a Protestant, and we hear, oh, you're one of the protesters. You're one of the people with uh, signs marching outside of somewhere, protesting, being all negative. Why are you so negative? So we hear, when someone says Protestant, we hear protest. But it would be better to link it to another way of breaking the word down. Think of pro-testimony. Pro-testimony. This is a confession of what we believe positively, and to the extent that we are against something, it is merely that we are against the renewal of lunatic persecutions. What we're against is the renewal of the persecution. What we are for is the Lord Jesus. We want to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus. That's our protestimony, and our protest to the extent that we are protesting uh, against an abuse, it's we're protesting against uh, the persecution of God's people. So the first Protestant was therefore John, the elector of Saxony. He was one of the electors of the Holy Roman Empire. He was a, he was a uh, uh, supporter, backer, defender of Luther. 
He was the first one to sign the protest at the Second Diet of Spire. That statement was both a protestimony and a protest. It was both. It was a protestimony and it was a protest. The protestimony was this. I'm quoting from the letter that was drafted that John signed. This is what they said, among other things. We are resolved by the grace of God to maintain the pure and exclusive teaching of his only word, such as is contained in the biblical books of the Old and New Testaments, without adding anything thereto that may be contrary to it. This word is the only truth. It is the sure rule of all doctrine and of all life, and it can never fail or deceive us. That's their faith. All right? That's what they told the emperor. That's what they told all the assembled. This is what we believe. We are resolved by the grace of God to maintain the pure and exclusive teaching of his only word, such as is contained in the biblical books of the Old and New Testaments, without adding anything thereto that may be contrary to it. This word is the only truth. It is the sure rule of all doctrine and of all life and can never fail or deceive us. Protestimony. That is protestimony. The protest was this. If you do not yield to our request, we protest by these presents before God, our only creator, preserver, redeemer, and savior, and who will one day be our judge, as well as before all men and all creatures, that we, for us and for our people, remember these are political rulers, princes, so we're protesting, for us and for our people, neither consent nor adhere in any manner whatsoever to the proposed decree in anything that is contrary to God, to his holy word, to our right conscience, to the salvation of our own souls, and to the last decree of spires. In other words, this was about, we don't want our people killed. (laughs) What are we protesting against? We're protesting against murder. We're protesting against a blood persecution breaking out against our people. That's what we're protesting about. And what is our protestimony? Our protestimony is our faith in God and his holy word, the only thing that will never deceive us. The confession was to hold on to what God God has taught us in his word, and only that. That's the protestimony. We want to hold on to what God has taught us in his word. This is sola scriptura. We want to cling to that, we want to be faithful to that, and we want to embrace that. Would, do you have, how could you have any objections to that? That's the protestimony. And the protest was against those who would persecute the saints of God on the mere authority of mere men. If you're, if you're going to kill God's people, if you're going to persecute God's people on the authority of mere men, we protest. Right? This is the sort of thing we protest. This is not... Uh, So this is not a triviality. What they were protesting was a life and death issue, as as will be revealed by some of the subsequent stories in the subsequent history of Protestantism. Remember, the word testis is the Latin word for witness. The prefix pro means for, not against. So Protestant is for the witness, for the testimony, pro-testimony. It is a positive affirmation. It is not a bundle of negativity. It is, uh, the Protestant faith has positive scriptural content. We know what we believe. We know what we stand for. We know what we confess. We know what we believe. And that is what we're prepared to seal Uh, And we're prepared to seal our testimony to these truths with our lives. I want to give you four snapshot stories. I want to give you four snapshot stories. As a preparation for that, I want to mention something. There have been three great eras in the history of the church. We're we're 2,000 years into it. There have been three great eras of martyrdom in the history of the church. Three great eras of martyrdom in the history of the church. The first happened in the 10 persecutions before pagan Rome was conquered by the gospel, surrendering finally in the realm of Constantine. So there were 10 persecutions by the pagan emperors. It was not, it was not 300 years of non-stop persecution, but there were 10 outbreaks of persecution. And this is the era 
when Christians were being fed to the lions. This is the era when the pagan emperors were trying to crack down, were trying to uh, deal with the Christians. And this is, this is where um, Christians as a persecuted minority are still recognized by most of the world as having been a persecuted minority. The persecution of pagan Rome in the first centuries of the church. The second great era of martyrdom was the Reformation. The second great era of martyrdom was the Reformation, and it was a veritable nebula of martyrs. Right? It, it put the first centuries of the church into the shade, taking nothing away from the glorious martyrs who, who um, faithfully stood for their faith in those early centuries. But the Reformation was the great era of martyrdom in the history of the church. The third great era, depending on where in this world you live, is the present era. The third great era of persecution is today. The third great era, and, and part of this is simply uh, economies of scale, right? So uh, the population of the world now is seven, um, seven billion people, roughly. And so you have many countries that are extremely hostile to the, the Christian faith, and they actively persecute Christians, and more, more Christians are dying for their faith today than in any time in history. So this is the third great era of martyrdom. We live in kind of a bubble, uh, a protected bubble, where we're, th these realities are hidden from us, but this is another, um, uh, a, another great martyr era. So first years under the pagan Romans, the second was the era of the Reformation, and the third is today. To give you an idea of how it worked in the Reformation, at one point, the Inquisition, at one point, the Inquisition sentenced, a judicial sentence, they sentenced the entire population of Holland to death. That was about three million people. Three million people. So the Inquisition put the seal, said everybody in Holland um, is sentenced to die, and the only exceptions were listed by name. So if you were in Holland and you had an exception, you were listed by name, and if your name wasn't on there, you were sentenced to die. And that was three million people. In other words, it, th that number of people were not killed, but had an army swept in and killed all three million, it would have been um, a church-approved genocide. It would have been something, yes, we told you you could do that. They were all sentenced to die anyway, uh, three million souls. The number of martyrs that came out of the Reformation, uh, out of the Reformation era, was simply enormous. The number of martyrs that came out of the Reformation era was simply enormous. In those times of high peril, what we tend to think of as musty doctrine was to them the high mountain air of sweet forgiveness. They would do anything for these truths. So you look at something like the Heidelberg Catechism or you look at something like the Westminster Confession of Faith or you look at what seemed to us to be arcane debates over um, the presence or the absence of the body of the Lord in the consecrated bread. And, and you realize that people were being taken to the stake because they wouldn't affirm certain of these doctrines, which meant that the, the contrary doctrine was precious to them. It was not just, they're not just being stubborn. The contrary doctrine was precious to them. So, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you four stories. And these four stories will illustrate each one of our characteristics of romance. Courage, high endurance, generosity, and warm affection. Courage. The residents of Leiden, a, town, a, a city in Holland, told William the Silent, there, there are two Williams, there's William the Silent and then William of Orange, don't get them mixed up. Bad things will happen on your history test. <laughs> but William the Silent and William of Orange are both good guys. Uh, the residents of Leiden, uh, I, I need to uh, back up, uh, the, the empire in Spain was the dominant 
hegemon of that era. As Ben mentioned in the first talk, they ruled southern Italy, they ruled Spain, they owned Holland. So Holland uh, and other territories as well. So the Spanish owned the Low Countries. They, they uh, held on to Holland. And because the Protestant Reformation took root in Holland, one thing led to another, and the Spanish decided they were going to crack down on them, and this turned into a war for independence, etc. William the Silent was the leader of the uh, Protestants in Holland, and the Spanish came to besiege the town of Leiden. The inhabitants of Leiden told William the Silent, who wasn't there, he was uh, elsewhere, they told him that they would hold out in a siege against the Spanish for one month with bread and for another month without bread. So they said, we can hold out one month with bread, we can hold out for a second month without bread. The siege began at the end of May, and it was ended at the beginning of October. All right? Notice how they, they calculate. We think we can ha hang out for two months, but it went from May to October. At one point, the Spanish offered favorable terms. Now, the, one of the things that the Dutch had been really remarkable in their, in their building of the dikes, and Leiden was, by this point, inland, um, but there was a whole, it was inland artificially. So there were a whole complex series of dikes that went out. I think the ocean was like 10 miles away by this point. Um, and so uh, they had this complex series of dikes and what they wanted to do, the, what the Protestants wanted to do, was they, they finally, things got so bad that they decided we're going to breach the, we're going to breach the dikes and flood, we're going to flood our country so we can sail ships up to the city with relief supplies. That was the, the idea. So they, they got the agreement of all the farmers who, whose land would be flooded, and then they breached the dikes, and the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. Right, the, the wind was blowing the water out to sea so that it didn't flood, to the, didn't flood to the city. So they breached the dikes. They were holding out. They were holding out. They were holding out. At one point, the Spanish offered favorable terms if they would only surrender the city. All you have to do is surrender the city. We will give you favorable terms. This is, this is the answer they got. You call us eaters of dogs and cats. Very well. So long then, <laughs> this tears me up. So long then, as in this city, you hear a dog bark or a cat meow, you may know that we will not yield. And when all else, <laughs> rats, <Yeah. laughs> I was thinking about this earlier. When all else is done, we will eat our left arms and keep our right to to fight for our country, our faith, and our God. And last, if we have to die, we will set fire to the city and perish in the flames. So, that's where they are. They're, you know, this is terrible. Then relief came to them when the reinforcements uh, breached the dikes and were able to sail up to the city. So they breached the dikes, and then after this agonizing time, the wind shifted, and the sea flooded in, and the ships came and relieved them. Courage. How about high endurance? A young Huguenot woman named Marie Durant, 14, 14 years old, was required to abjure her Huguenot faith. All she had to do was say one word, jabjur. I, I repent, I recant. I abjure my Huguenot faith. All she had to do was say one word, jabjur, and she could go free. Because she would not do it, she was placed in a tower by the sea with 30 other Huguenot women, where she remained for the next 38 years. She, she and her fellows scratched a different word entirely on the wall of the prison. It was resiste, resist. I won't say jabjur, I will say resiste, resist. That is resistance, that's high endurance. Generosity. Another Huguenot woman, 
the great, as I said this is the, the, area, the era of martyrdoms, uh, probably the great um, number of martyrdoms were in France and in Holland. Another Huguenot woman was being led to the stake in France. She'd been rich. She was the kind of woman who was rich in good deeds, ministering to the poor, and a crowd of them were following her to the stake, weeping. So she was, um, she was the lady who was the, like Dorcas in the, in the New Testament. She was rich in good deeds. One of the beggar women, one of the poor women, cried out, You will never give me alms anymore. You will never give me alms anymore. And the martyr, the woman, and isn't it glorious that we will not know her name until the resurrection, said this. She said, yes, once more. And she stooped down, took off her shoes, gave them, <laughs> gave them to the woman, and went to heaven barefoot. Generosity. Warm affection. After the Protestants in France had suffered a crushing defeat at the Battle of Moncontour. Their leader, de Coligny, was being carried away wounded on a litter. It was a terrible defeat. He was being carried away wounded on a litter. A trusted counselor of his, who was also wounded, a man named, uh, a man named Lestrange, and was, be, was being carried behind de Coligny on a narrow road. When the road widened, Lestrange had his litter bearers carry him up alongside de Coligny. The two men looked at each other without speaking, and then Lestrange looked away, eyes full of tears. But as he looked away, he said, So is it that God is very sweet. De Coligny said later this brief word was used to restore his courage. So, what does all this mean? means I shouldn't put that many stories like that all close together. <laughs> That's what that means. Right. There are four basic storylines in the scriptures which lend themselves to romance, to courage, to high endurance, generosity, and warm affection. They are the underdog story, the younger son as heir story, the exile and return story, and the death and resurrection story. These, these are the, the basic stories that we find in Scripture to describe how God deals with us. And they are all romances. They're, they're, um, they're great romantic stories in this, the sense I'm using it. What do, what do you have? Underdog story, younger son is heir story. You have the exile and return story. You have the death and resurrection story. We have the David and Goliath story, underdog. We have the Isaac and Ishmael story, younger son as heir story. We have the Nehemiah story, the uh, exile and return story. We have the Easter story, death and resurrection, and all the patterns throughout all of Scripture. All of these, all, all these stories, um, uh, underdog, younger son, son as heir, exile and return, death and resurrection, all of these are replicated countless times in the history of Protestantism, over and over and thousands of times. And they are replicated in ways that called for and obtained true courage, high endurance, deep generosity, and warm affection. A solitary monk with a hammer and nail and some topics he intended to discuss. The younger son of northern Europe inherited the west and moved west. The younger son of the north inherited the west and then moved west. And it was not for nothing that the second of Luther's three major treatises in 1520 was entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And the story of the Reformation was a true resurrection story, post-Tenebras Lux, after darkness, light. It's a true resurrection, it's life from the dead story. This is too fantastic to be true. This is too good to be true. Um, and when you look at the, how, how the works righteousness merit-mongering system had crushed the Christian people for generations, for centuries, and then they, when they, all they had to do is get one whiff of free grace, one whiff of you don't have to, you can get off that treadmill, one, one inkling, you don't, have to, you don't have to strive and strive and try and work. You, it's, it's a gift. 
By grace are you saved, through faith, not of work, lest any man should boast. You, it's, it's hard to envision what a thunderclap of good news that was to Europe. And they would go to the stake by the thousands. They would, they would be exiled by the thousands. They, they, they would suffer anything in order to be able to hang on to this heritage. Friends, we have grown wise in our own conceits. Wise in our own conceits. And because we've become boring, we are too easily bored. You've heard it said that interested people are interesting people. This operates on the same principle, only running in the opposite direction. Dullards look around the world of church history, and all they see are what dullard eyes can see, which is not very much. We are actually capable of looking at several we are actually capable of looking at several centuries of high, sustained theological adventure and seeing nothing more than quaint and archaic expressions that we trip over in the King James Version of the Bible. Well, that's a dusty book. That's an old book. And when you, when you think about this and you think about how exciting, these, uh, what, what a cutting-edge new thing this must have been. I, I was, uh, uh, a few years ago, I was given a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs in three volumes. It's like, like that thick. Uh, in three volumes. It's, it's not the same books, obviously, but it's the same edition of Fox's Book of Martyrs that John Bunyan owned from the 1640s. So there's this thick Book of Martyrs, and it looks like you look at it, you say, oh, an antiquarian book, or oh, an old book. But when you think about printing technology, when you think about what it took to, to build a book like that, to manufacture a book like that, the shops where they printed these things must have been several acres. You know, it must have been like Costco-sized shop, you know, where, where they have all the pages out to dry and they assemble them and the craftsmanship is amazing. And you say, they're, and, and they're doing this stuff. They're printing at this high technical level and it's all illegal, right? It's, it's illegal or, or it's illegal in, um, uh, in many places of Europe. So we, th- we sort of dismiss it. We patronize it. We don't, we don't realize... Um, how drunk on the good news Europe got when the good news burst forth. It was just, as Lewis says in his uh, the beginning of English literature in the 16th century, it was not too grim, but too glad to be true. Protestants were the ones who were liberated. Protestants were the ones who were forgiven. Protestants were the ones who were for something, and the only thing they were against was killing other people for no good reason. And what we do is when, we, when the whole thing disappears into the rear view mirror, we say, oh, wars of religion, yeah, the Catholics killed Protestants and Protestants killed Catholics. Yes, there were, uh, there were persecutions that went the other way. But the factor, but the, the, uh, the scale, the ratio was completely um, disproportionate. In, in, in other words, um, the Protestant, Protestants were taking one thing with another, were not a persecuting people. They were, um, and civil liberty and liberty of conscience was something that was developed by Protestants in Protestant countries. This is something we developed. So basically what I'm arguing is there's very little to be ashamed of in your history. There's very little to, you know, we're, we know that we're sinners. One of the things that we confess is that we are sinners. We confess that depravity affects us as well as the other guy. It's not just a white hats and black hats thing, but we confess that. We embrace it. We understand it. And when we review our history, and if you've been cool, basically, if you've been cool shamed into thinking that there isn't a great civilization here, that there isn't that there aren't stories of high adventure, that there is not a theological exuberance, that there is not something fundamentally glorious that ought to be captured and preserved and passed on in novels and poems and songs, you're crazy. This is one of the most glorious eras in human history. One of the best. This is a high watermark of of how good it can get when people love God. If someone read Treasure Island and summarized it as the tale of a boy who found some things, I, 
I can think of many things to call such a man, but literary critic wouldn't be one of them. If someone can look at the 16th and 17th centuries and see only Fustian doctrinal arcana, then it is most certain that the problem resides 500 years downstream and not 500 years upstream. We are the blinkered ones. We are the blind ones. We are the ones who have failed to apprehend. We, we're the ones who have failed to, uh, to receive our inheritance. This is a great and glorious heritage. And when you, so don't sneer at the Old Testament Israelites. You know, when, when you're, you know what the pattern is, you're flipping through the, reading through the book of Judges. Um, the people fall away from God, and then he sends a persecuting nation. They get in trouble. They cry out to God. He delivers them, and then they start worshiping idols again. On the, you turn the page, and they're worshiping idols again. And then they get into trouble, and then they cry out to God, and he sends, you know, same thing, you turn the page. Every time you turn the page, you're, ta- you're turning like 200 years, right? It, in other words, that sin of forgetting the deliverance of 200 years ago is a very easy sin to commit. We are committing it right this minute. We do it. Don't sneer at the Israelites who forgot about Gideon or sneer at the Israelites who forgot what uh, Samson did for them or sneer at the Israelites who forgot what this great judge did for them. We do the same thing. We are doing the very same thing because what happens is if we say, I think, uh, man, what God did through Luther and Calvin and what God did through uh, Zwingli and, and Bootser and what God did through these men was remarkable. It was astonishing. It was glorious. And then, you're, then people taunt us and say, well, you're just a Calvinist, or you're just a follower of men, or you just, um, you're, you're just a Samsonite. Luggage. Sorry. I, should, <laughs> I should not have used Samsonite. <laughs> not in my notes. You're, you're just a follower of this judge, or you're just a follower of that judge. Or you're just, do, do, do you see how easy it is to be cool-shamed? How easy it is to be made to drop your heritage drop your legacy, drop the glorious things that God has given you, and back away shuffling, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If someone can look at that era and only see um, doctrinal hair splitting or only see certain things I don't agree with in the Westminster Confession, if that's all, all you see, it's because you're blind. This is one of the best things, one of the best eras, one of the most glorious eras, one of the most exciting eras. One of the, it's just staggering. And, and the, the thing that is staggering, it's hard to tell what is the most staggering thing about it. One is, is it the high level of heroism from, in the Reformation? Or is it the high level of ignorance that we have about that heroism? I think it's the latter. I think our, our ignorance is far surpasses... Um, Uh, their heroism, and that takes some doing. So, my plea to modern Protestants would be this. And this plea is is given in the name of our fathers and mothers in the faith, and it's a very straightforward plea. Come up higher. Think higher. Remember. Come up higher. Don't let it go. Don't let it drop. You're not a bigot if you don't let it go. You're not a bigot if you remember with honor those who served God with honor. What's wrong with that? Why would we ever think something was wrong with that? Why would we, why would we, we refuse to honor our fathers and mothers when our fathers and mothers in this era were so honorable? This is nothing like it. Nothing like it in history. And yet we are too cool for school. We just don't want to learn. We don't want to get it. We don't want to grasp it. So here's the plea. Come up higher, further up, further in. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that you would bless us as we meditate on these things. We pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. We got some really great questions in. Um, would, there, would you recommend any other books, um, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, that has um, stories about the Reformation or about martyrs as well? Um, yes, there would be Fox's Book of Martyrs. I think um, uh, a good, um, basically what you want to do is read histories that are written by someone who's not trying to be a clinical, cool historian. Uh, by cool, I mean low temperature cool. Um, 
if you're, if you're just trying to do abstract history as though we can just sort of count the coffee mugs and, and it's not that sort of thing. Um, uh, a, good, um, a good recommendation would be, I, I'd begin with Daubigny's History of the Reformation in England. History of the Reformation in England. Daubigny um, is, Merle Daubigny was a 19th century writer and he's writing as an unabashed advocate. So historians, uh, modern historians have fallen into the trap uh, that, of thinking that objectivity, scholarly objectivity means that you can't take sides. And there is a, there's a school of um, uh, historian that the, the prior to um, this modern era that doesn't accept that. And of course you don't have the right to fudge facts or make up things just because you're a Protestant, but Daubigny is a, is a good place to start. Um, history of the Reformation in England, that's in two volumes, Banner of Truth. He also wrote uh, History of the Reformation overall, which I've not read, but it, he, he is good. Um, so um, the, uh, there's a, a Banner of Truth title uh, uh, that talks about some of the Covenanter um, martyrs in, the, uh, in Scotland. Uh, that is that book's called Fair Sunshine. Fair, Fair Sunshine. Um, there is. Uh, we'll see what else. Um, uh, Thomas McCree, story of the Scottish Church. Uh, Thomas McCree's the story of the Scottish Church. He also wrote a biography of uh, uh, John Knox. John Knox wrote a history of the Reformation in Scotland. Um, uh, good, good biographies. There, you know, there's some good recent biographies of, of reformers like Bootser, uh, uh, Calvin, others. I, so I'd recommend um, that's a start. Yeah. And you want to read the sort that are, like you said, that are vibrant, <laughs> not just not yeah. just clinical. This matters. It, yeah. it can't be clinical. If if it's clinical, it's not honest. If, if it's Clinical, it's pretending to be honest. And it's missing the point. It's missing the point. Of, of what actually happened in right. those, in those uh, right. tangles. Um, you wrote a book called The Serrated Edge. And uh, I've been reading through Here I Stand by uh, Bainton about Luther. And one of the things that struck me is that Luther was well known for being very sharp and serrated, we might say, in, in his writing and in his uh, defense of the faith. <laughs> and it, it struck me as... There's a lot of linkage there between um, fighting for not just being, as, as uh, Whitfield called it, the velvet-mouthed preacher. Yeah. Um, but thought experiment, what would Luther's Twitter account look like? And <laughs> it looked very fun, I imagine. But um, yeah, yeah. Fun is one word. <laughs> <laughs> Luther would think that I was a sissy. <laughs> you know, and I'm not kidding either. Um, when, if you read, um, uh, Luther and Erasmus had an epic collision over the freedom of the will, and Luther wrote Bondage of the Will in response to Erasmus. And all the way through the book, uh, there are little pieces of Erasmus flying everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Luther didn't critique Erasmus. Luther chainsawed Erasmus. So, yeah. And at the very end of the book, he says, you know, Erasmus, you're a lot smarter than I am. And the, and the only reason I was able to whip you so bad in this debate is that's just one stupid position. <laughs> <laughs> you picked the wrong side. <laughs> you picked the wrong side. It, it was, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I love that kind of, I, I love vigorous writing. But when I'm reading Martin Luther, sometimes I go, ooh, Martin, <laughs> Martin. Martin, but, but um, God used him mightily. I, I think that's a good example. The, the, the baseline was different in that era, but still Martin was full of, full of beans. Um, and, and in the so, best way. In the, <laughs> in the best possible way. Table talk is another thing. You know, get a few beers into him and no telling what he's going to do. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> and, and how is that, again, What's the defense for speaking like that, for preaching like that, for writing like that? You know, where people say, oh, we need to be nice. Yeah, you know? yeah nice. So the, def the defense, and was what I tried to argue for in Serrated Edge, is that that kind of discourse, that kind of 
interaction, that kind of theological debate, is found all the way through the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. Jesus does it. Paul does it. Elijah does it. Amos does it. Um, so you have books of satire. You have books of polemical. You know, Jesus in Matthew 23 just sort of torches the Pharisees. You know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Where'd you graduate from? Bag of snakes seminary? You know, <laughs> you know uh, we, yeah. so what we do is we put holy gloss varnish over top of biblical, you know, brood of vipers. You know, well, what, what is Jesus calling them? He's calling the most respected theologians of his day a, a, a snake pit. And the snake pit, this goes back to the serpent in the garden. He, he's, um, Jesus is just violent in some of his polemical uh, interactions. Elijah, when he's mocking the priests of Baal, whom he's going to kill later that afternoon, <laughs> the taunting was just the warm-up. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, they, um, one of the things that is at least um, respectable, you know, I, I think that the, the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation era was violent and bloodthirsty and bad, but at least they knew that these issues weren't beanbag. Right. right? At least they acted like they believed what they were talking about. Um, yeah. And Elijah's the same way. So he's got this showdown with the priest of Baal on Mount Carmel, and, and they're dancing around the altar, cutting themselves with knives. And Elijah says, hey, and this is what it is in the Hebrew, hey, maybe your God's in the John. Right. You know, <laughs> bang on the door louder. Right. Right? Um, maybe your God has covered his feet, was the idiom. So maybe your God is in the John. Bang on the door louder. Um, you need to wake your God up. He's, he's in, been in there far too long. Uh, that is not respectable ecumenical discourse. <laughs> That's not how you win friends and influence people. There's no, there was no coexist bumper sticker on Elijah's car. <laughs> on his chariot. <laughs> on his chariot. I think it's Ravenhill that liked to quote a Scottish preacher that would say, often, you know, I want to preach as a dying man to dying men. And I think... Uh, what, what those men had in that day and age was they were willing to die. They were willing to yeah. die for these things. Yeah, that was Baxter who wanted to preach as a dying man to dying men. And yeah, you, time, we're burning daylight, time's wasting, we're not fooling around, we actually believe this stuff, right? right? And we want to act like we believe it, and we want to act like we believe it in every department of our lives. Every, and that's going to bring you into collision. And when you come into collision, you're, it's going to be collision-like. And then some Christians are going to tell you that's not nice. And I grant it, but is it biblical? That's the issue. Is it, is it biblical, not does it, would Miss Manners approve, or not would um, Emily Post approve? The issue is, does, is this a biblical way of behaving? Does this honor God? Does this honor God? And that does not mean that there's no error in that direction. Sure. Like I sometimes, uh, I sometimes think that Luther went, too far, I would say, objectively, not against our customs or yours, but I think that's, I don't see that degree of invective in the, in the Bible, you know, so when the, when the reformers are um, publishing cartoons of the, of the devil defecating into the Pope's hat, you know, <laughs> things like that are not helpful. <laughs> not done in the best circles. <laughs> uh, maybe a, a fun last question. What's, What's the inspiration behind the artwork for this year's uh, conference? I know we, we had yes. a conversation about it when we were brainstorming about it. I'd love for you okay. to sort of share the, the vision behind the, the picture. That's Wittenberg. Um, if you haven't unpacked the picture, the towers in the back, that's Wittenberg. Uh, Luther is standing up in the front of the car, uh, and that's John Calvin driving the car in the back. His beard whipping over his right shoulder. It's the Reformation. So when I thought of Reformate, we were thinking of it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I thought Reformation 500. Oh, that sounds like a race. <laughs> and, and in fact, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it's a race. Yes, compares it to it's a, race. It's a race. So we had Reformation 500. We asked our, our very talented Forrest Dickinson to um, to. Um, come up with something with this concept, a racing car. He has so, some fans in the room, apparently. Yes. So. <laughs> 95. 
you notice that the car is number 95, 95 theses. Um, so, I mean, there are hidden depths. It is in layered this. with meaning. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And we actually have some, some posters back there. I think they're for sale. If you wanted to take one home, you could get it at the, at the desk back there. Anyway, that's a fun, fun way to end it tonight. Uh, thank you, Pastor Doug. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's The Romance of Protestantism. As I mentioned before, this is that time of year where we want to cultivate more and more gratitude for those who have come before us. So we want to welcome you. Please share this talk with as many folks as you can. Cheers.